Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey everyone, I am so excited about today's episode and I can't wait to get into it and share it with you. But I just wanted to remind you before we get going today to visit expatmoneyshow.com and sign up for my private newsletter, EMS Pulse. Right now we are sharing the weekly episodes from the podcast, but also a ton of other products and services that we're going to be offering, lots of language programs, lots of tips and tricks for being an expat, whether you're a first time expat or an expat hopeful. There's just so much going on at expatmoneyshow.com. I really hope that you get a chance to come and visit us, join the newsletter, and then from there, maybe join our Facebook group at expatmoneyforum.com. Lots happening. I really want to share it with you guys. And the best way to stay connected is through these two sites, expatmoneyshow.com and expatmoneyforum.com. Thanks so much. Enjoy today's episode. Cheers. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show. And today's guest is the founder and executive director of 1018, a nonprofit organization that works with teen moms in Namawango slums in Uganda with halfway house and a vocational school, a wash campaign in remote Rakobo village inside Lake Mamboro National Park and food for children in three schools. Please welcome to the show, Jennings Wright. You are very welcome on the show. I'm so happy to have you here. <laughs> so much. I'm glad to be here. Jennings, why don't you take a moment and kind of walk us through your backstory? How did you get working in Africa? How did you become an expat? So many things to explore today. I'm really curious. Well, I did a lot of traveling as a child, thanks to my grandparents. So I was always open. We lived in Guatemala when I was a kid. My dad was there on a contract. And when we became empty nesters, my husband and I looked around for the new adventure and decided to buy a hotel in Nicaragua. So we lived in Nicaragua for a while. For that, I had started a nonprofit in 2008, not totally sure actually what I was going to do, and then reconnected with a friend who was living in Uganda. She got us over there, and as soon as my kids and I were there, we're like, this is absolutely what what this whole thing was about. Um, So our first visits were in 2009, and I've been 13 times to date, even with a few years of Nicaragua in the middle when I didn't go. So it's been a really fun, frustrating, discouraging, exciting adventure, you know, for the last 12 years. I bet. 
So the you said you did a nonprofit. Was the original nonprofit in Uganda, or was it that just like experience that you had that helped get you prepared for this experience? Yeah. So none of that actually. Yeah. Okay. Oh, uh, excellent. Yeah. So I had had an a, just an idea for literally probably seven or eight years that I just wanted to start a nonprofit. My mom, my grandmother, always volunteered. Always worked in local organizations and fundraised. And so it was just part of my DNA, I guess. And when I started the nonprofit, we had friends living in Thailand and friends living in Zambia at that time. And my thought was, well, I can use this to raise money for them. You know, that would just give, instead of our hundred dollars a month, we could, you know, raise more money. And so I went through the whole process, not totally sure what we were going to do, but just it's a process. So I I started the process and mid-December, we got our IRS approval. And then over Christmas, I reconnected with Suzanne in Uganda. And so we started helping her just a little bit and ended up going to visit and the rest is history. But honestly, I had no idea. That's the truth. (laughs) Well, we're going to have to get more into detail than the rest is history because we've still got a lot of recording time here. Right. All right. So let's let's break down what was your opinions, your thoughts, your feelings the first time you've been to Uganda. I guess from the charities, the 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 nonprofit side, but also just a country and a culture side as well. Because I've been to Uganda, I traveled extensively through that area. I haven't been thirteen times like you have. The country certainly left some strong emotions with me and some strong feelings with me. Yeah. I think anybody that's been to Uganda, that's what they say. As And I, I know people have been all over Africa and I have only been to Egypt as far as the rest of Africa, but it just gets in your heart somehow. So I helped Suzanne from afar initially to rent an office for a ministry she was working with in the slum. And my daughter went over by herself at 16 in May to visit because my friend's daughter's same age. And my son and I went in September and I, you know, I got a 500 millimeter lens because this was going to be my only trip to Africa. And I was going to take go on safari, you know, and we got there. We went down in the slum. I've been in slums. I've been in slum in Haiti. I've been in the slum in, in Guatemala. We were there during the Civil War. So, I mean, I have done that but not like Namawango. I mean, I, it's really bad. My son was 12 at the time and we were walking around there and the smell is horrendous and it's, you know, just waste everywhere and children and dogs and drunk people. And the, we went to visit a family and this is when I knew, this is the minute I knew we went to visit a family it was a Jaja grandmother who had all of her grandchildren, six grandchildren living with her because their parents had died of AIDS. And like from three different children, she had all their children because they were all orphans and she couldn't afford for them to go to school. One of them was HIV positive. She couldn't afford the medicine. And my son, who was 12, turned to me and said, I will pay for them to go to school. And that was it. That was the moment because I'm thinking, yes, of course you have to pay for the, I mean, like in your adult mind, you're thinking, of course you have to do this, but how do we make it work? And what it, and when my 12 year old son, who by the way, didn't have enough money to send them to school, but turns to me and says, that's when you, I just knew that was, 
that was the moment. And we've been working there ever since. Okay. Follow-up questions. My goodness. Yeah. That would have been, I can imagine would have hit you like a ton of bricks. And we homeschooled our kids. And so, you know, education, obviously to most of us is a huge deal anyway. And then having been responsible for my kids' education and my son, who is the least student-ish of my children, to just, I mean, no hesitation. He heard the story. He got the need. He said, let's fix it. I mean, basically. And I'm a very practical person. So the, my brain's like, well, yeah, let's fix it. You know, I don't know how to fix it, but let's see what we could do. So that entrepreneurial mindset right from the beginning instilled in him. Yeah. That's also interesting that you mentioned that your children are homeschooled because I homeschool my daughter. When I listen to your story about sending kids to school, my first instinct is, well, like, I don't agree with school. But in other instances, I mean, it's something that I would have to rectify as well. So it's interesting that your child who is homeschooled, his first instinct is I need to send them to school. And he didn't go through school himself. So it's this kind of weird piece to put together. It is. And there are actually a lot of reasons in Uganda, in the slum in particular, and especially 12 years ago, there were a lot of people who had escaped the LRA in the North who had come down to the slum. So Uganda, like every other African country, is very tribal. And so Kampala is part of the Buganda kingdom. There still is a Kabaka, a king of every tribe. He lives in in Kampala. But a lot of these people had come down from the north, from just below South Sudan. And their tribe is Luo, which is a Choli tribe. And they spoke a totally different language. Then you have people like in every slum or ghetto in every city that have come to the city to make money, right? I mean, they're going to leave the village and they're going to come vastly illiterate population. I mean, I don't know the stats because probably nobody's ever done it, but there's 30,000 people living in Namwango. And I would guess the illiteracy rate is over 70, 75%. So you can't home, they're not going to be homeschooled. I mean, it's not possible. The only way they're going to learn is to go learn. Now I have a problem. Uganda has a big boarding school tradition and I I don't think you send six-year-olds to boarding school. So I, I, there is a give and take there, but the only way they will learn, the only way they will become literate is to go to school. Secondly, the vast majority of the poor in Uganda only eat when they go to school. They don't get a meal at home. A lot of the schools will do, have a nurse So maybe they have a medical issue, their parents can't afford to take them anywhere, but a nurse might identify it. So in in a place like Uganda, school is is much more of a safety net with, you know, than we would associate with it in a Western culture, you know. So one of the problems with these lockdowns last year and the lockdowns this year is all these kids who were getting one and two or two meals a day at school suddenly were not getting any meals because the parents don't they couldn't feed them before. They knew they were getting food at school and then now they don't have food again. So it's it's much more than what you and I would think of as school. <laughs> you know. But it it does go to show because I mean, I have ideological beliefs and 
I want to challenge them. I want to see where they fit and where they don't fit. If anything, I'm a realist. I mean, I have traveled extensively and I understand that there are no simple options or opinions for these types of things. Even I think when we were talking privately, maybe a month or two ago, I think I was quite vocal. Like I don't normally believe in charities or support charities or anything like that. But you told me a bit about your story and I was like, wow, that's intense. Like I want to learn more. I'm, I'm curious. So that's what we're doing today. So I guess explain maybe some of the other reasons, like why particularly Uganda has so many problems? Because I've traveled a lot in Africa. I've been to South Africa, Botswana, Zimbabwe. I've been to Nigeria multiple times. I've been to Kenya and a bunch of places there. Are these because of things that happened with Idi Amin or because of the war with Ro- that Rwanda had and spillover? Like, I don't understand the reasons for this. In this there era. are a few reasons, and I am by no means an expert, but... One of the the first domino to fall, if you will. So Winston Churchill called Uganda the Pearl of Africa. And what what England did when they colonized is they made Uganda the breadbasket and they developed Kenya, right? So they put in big road systems and cities and things like that in Kenya, and they wanted Uganda to, to grow food. Okay, so they didn't put in infrastructure and they didn't. Yes, they had like governors and people there, but it was it it was sort of the Nebraska of (laughs) like, you know, it was like, yeah, that's where we're growing our food. And so we need enough roads to get it to Kenya, to get it to to Mombasa, to get out into the ocean or whatever. But we don't really need to develop it because we want them to be growing food. That was problem one as far as in comparison, say, to Kenya. Okay. Okay. Then when independence came and Idi Amin came, of course, that was terrible. I actually was just reading news while I was waiting for this. And uh, Museveni is saying now everybody in Africa should speak Swahili. Well, Ugandans don't want to speak Swahili because Idi Amin made all his soldiers speak Swahili. So only like on the Kenya side over around Tororo and all that, do they, if you're from that area, you speak Swahili, but they don't like it because they remember that that's what those terrible people were speaking as they were killing everybody. So that was a problem. The, the British form of school is a problem because you test at various levels. And so in P7, if you don't test well, you're done with school. Well, you're 14. So that's a problem. So, and and Museveni, who's been president now for 36 years, doesn't care. And that's a problem. I mean, he's locked everybody down. They've gotten big money from IMF loans and nobody's seen any money. Nobody's getting many food. They're keeping people in their homes or arresting them and finding them, but they they aren't giving away any money. So there are it's a it's a systemic rolling pattern of the elites versus, you know, those people over there, which is the most of the people. But it's a problem. 
It is. And, and, you know, China has come in. There's another article today. I didn't read it, but some big thing from China is open. So Uganda's let all these Chinese companies come in and make factories, but they bring Chinese workers in. The only thing they hire Ugandans for like janitors and security guards and stuff like that. And China owns everything in Uganda now. Yeah. I mean, they've given China is going and basically owning Africa. I mean, that's what they're doing at the moment. They have a giant appetite for natural resources and they are trading infrastructure for natural resources and for UN votes. I mean, if you go back to the 1970s and look at how the UN voted and Africa, it was all US, 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 US. And now out of what, 50, 52 countries, look at the percentage that are voting for China. I mean, in China's direction and against Taiwan. I mean, it's just huge, huge numbers. And they're putting in roads and highways and infrastructure and things like this, but it's Chinese engineers and it's Chinese labor, it's Chinese equipment and everything that's going in. Yeah. The last time I flew there, I flew through Doha and about 80% of my flight from Doha to Entebbe was Chinese who had come from China. And so, and, and Chinese people, so Uganda has a big Indian heritage population. A lot of Indian families moved to Uganda then they left during Idi Amin, but then they came back. And they they integrate with Ugandans and Ugandan society. They are in government, they're in parliament, they're you know doing various things. The Chinese don't. The Chinese people are over here with us Chinese people and they look down on the Ugandans. They fly in, they work, they fly back to China, they send their money back to China. So, and these lockdowns of the last two years or year and a half have, have further separated because we were talking about school. What the government says is we are putting classes on the radio and online. And so you can do these classes at home by listening to the radio. But number one, they're doing them in English. And if you didn't go to school, you don't know English. The parents are not literate, so they can't help. And nobody has a computer. And if they do, they can't afford enough data to do the classes. So the people who are continuing their education are in international schools and private schools and good boarding schools or whose parents can afford it. And everybody else is just left behind. Okay, so I also wanted to ask, because if Uganda is the breadbasket, and they can grow anything and everything there. Are people able to grow? Like you said that they're locked in their homes. Like there's these types of COVID lockdowns at the moment. How is that happening? So last year we had four months of almost complete lockdown. More people died getting beaten up for breaking the lockdown than died of COVID. And But they did allow farming um, and the only real industrial scale farming are owned by Chinese that they have giant, like 5,000, 10,000 acre rice fields and stuff. Of course, there's, they were still going, the sugarcane people were still going the smaller farms, the charcoal producers, they had to get special passes if they needed a vehicle this time around it, they, they have allowed agriculture and tourism 
I don't know why you'd want to go to be open. So, but they don't, you can't have any cars on the road. So again, we're sort of in that situation. We also have had in some places drought and in some places too much rain. So it, it hasn't been a great year in general for agriculture. And of course you have to be able to harvest and you have to be able to sell it. If you can't sell it, you can't buy more seeds or plants or, you know, whatever you're doing. The problem is not as much in the villages as far as food right now, this time of year, as it is in the cities, because prices have gone up about 35 to 40% in the last two weeks. And partly because there's not enough lorries bringing food to the city. And then they shut down everything but government sanctioned markets, and they're making people sleep there. They can't go home. They have to live there, but they're not getting all the product. And then they're not allowing people to go to the markets or the people are afraid to go to the markets to buy the food. So they have created this sort of never ending cycle of if we get the food, it costs too much. And I'm afraid to go out because I don't want to get beaten up for not doing something I'm supposed to be doing or fined or thrown in jail. Um, so the market people are sleeping there, but they're not selling anything. I mean, it's it's been very challenging. To quote unquote, protect people from a disease. Right. And they've now, when they did this lockdown this time, they had only had like 562 deaths from COVID total. Out of a country of how many people? Time, 44 million. 44 million. Where a huge number of them are immunocompromised from HIV AIDS. So, and I think today, yesterday, the number was still 1300 or something out of the whole country, but they've terrorized people. I mean, people are terrified to go outside and they can't work. So, I mean, it's, it's bad. That's brutal. I remember when I went to Uganda, I did go there for tourism and it seemed to me like you could take a seed and throw it in the dirt and a week later you would have a plant like it was just this lush 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 green mountainous beautiful stunning topography of a country which just had farming to me just seemed like it would just be so easy the the soil was so nutrient rich and everything grew and you had lots of rain and everything like that so it's so sad to hear what the government is doing and how it is affecting the people and how people are not even getting food now in a country which should be able to produce massive amounts of food. Right. And and it's, you know, we have, we have people coming to our gates every day that haven't eaten for days. And the last time they ate, they ate pasho, which is just cornmeal, really fine cornmeal. It's Ugali and in Kenya, you, you probably had it many times, but they make it into like a porridge, like a soup almost to make it last longer. And they will have eaten one time of that in three days because they can't buy it. And we bought, when the lockdown first came, we bought 50 kilo sacks for 70,000 shillings. And now they're 95,000 shillings. That's just two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Jesus. And then, okay. So that's what's happening right now with, with COVID and the situation there. Now, speak to me about the teen pregnancies, because when we were chit-chatting on the phone earlier, you mentioned some things that uh, are pretty shocking and a couple of stories. I don't know if you remember which ones, but maybe you can share some of those things that you've seen in Uganda. This is one of our biggest problems slash 
problems slash opportunities, whatever. So in the slum in particular, this, this happens in general in the slum, because obviously if I'm in the slum, I can't go grow tomatoes or raise a chicken or something. So young men, particularly though, so all the slums, Namuango is, is Kampala's and Uganda's largest slum, but there are several slums in Kampala and, and they back up to fairly affluent areas. And so the young men from, in particular, these surrounding areas buy food, they buy sanitary napkins, and then they go and tell these girls they have food and they have sanitary napkins, but they have to exchange sex for them. And so the men don't want to use condoms, even though condoms are free. Um, There's virtually no female contraception. And these girls are as young as like 13 and 14. So, you know. And so in the last lockdown, and it's easy to say this is voluntary prostitution. Well, okay, but they're starving. And what else do they, they don't have anything else. And their parents say to their teenage girls, maybe you need to go out and find a way to get some food. Well, if you, (laughs) I don't know what they think. I mean, they clearly know what they're telling them to do, or they sell them for, to, as brides to get food. And so last year in the lockdown in Namuango, over 50% of the teenage girls were pregnant. In some villages and towns, smaller towns, as many as two thirds of girls, 14 to 19, got pregnant. And we are now about six weeks from the partial lockdown to this, and then this full lockdown, and we are now seeing pregnant girls come to the office. And we, we've had girls who are lured into homes and, and raped and locked away for forced prostitution and enslavement to clean their house and they're selling them to other men. We had a girl get away last week from somebody. She was not raped, but she was beat up. We went to the police and they said, well, she wasn't raped. So we're just going to put it in the file with these hundreds of other ones we've gotten in the last week. So it's, it's really a continuing problem and, you know, you can't blame the girls. What are they supposed to do? So we're trying to do a lot of sensitization on both sides to the men and to the girls and to the parents and just say, this is not a solution because you are now you have 14 year olds, 15 year olds, 16 year olds with babies. They're going to have those kids for the rest of their life. That's another mouth to feed you going and saying, doing that to get food is great. Well, then they bring another mouth home. So that's a, that's a, it's a huge, huge issue. And then I remember when you were telling me a story about a girl who had just came in off the street to your office and she had just given birth and had the baby with her and like the umbilical cord hadn't even been cut. Like, oh my God. Yeah, we have we have had several, you know, going from homeless and I mean, really sick and, you know, we get a medical care and all that. I mean, we have success stories. Yeah. OK, so. OK, so let's talk. Tell me about the the work. I, I I've gone through this with you because I, I want people to hear it. And I, I think it's no surprise. Like I, I'm I'm having a bit of trouble with this. Like this is it is difficult for me to hear. Let's let's switch gears a little bit and get away from what the problem is. Let's talk about your work and how you're helping and what's going on on that front. Okay. 
So last year with the lockdowns and all of this uh, teen pregnancy became a big thing. And we were working with teen girls and some of those teen girls were mothers in the slum prior to last year's lockdown. We were working on on the vocational side, what we call small skills, something you can learn to make in a workshop in a day and then make making soap and longer term things. And that's what we have been focusing on. When all of this teen pregnancy came up last year, I just thought, you know, we just need a halfway house. We, we can't help these girls in doing what we're doing if they're dying on the street. So we, op- we started in August. We ended up opening in November. Uh, we called the Ross house after my grandmother, who, as I said, was a very volunteer oriented, um, where we take in teen moms in crisis. And so they come to us, we've had, you know, homeless, literally in the street, baby has, you know, umbilical cord infections, everything. We bring them in, we give them psychosocial counseling, sexual trauma. I've written a sexual trauma workbook. They take them through the sexual trauma workbook. We do, uh, but in our, we have a vocational program. So they go to the vocational program to learn either hairdressing or tailoring. They get medical care for themselves and their babies. They're getting fed. They're, you know, they're, and then we're teaching them. I mean, these girls are 15, 16 years old. They don't know how to take care of a baby. So we're teaching them childcare and how to wash a baby and and how to know when the baby needs to go to the doctor. I mean, the things that that kind of seem to us like, well, they should know that. Well, they I, I didn't know that when I was 14. So it's about a, a we don't have a limit. It's about a four to five month stay. And then we just it's a little delayed because of this lockdown, just opened the Subi house. Subi in Luganda means hope which is a transition house. So we moved two girls from the Ross house who had completed everything and they have moved to the Subi house. We have one girl still at the Ross house, but now we have room for three more because we expect them (laughs) with this. Um, And at the Subi house, they will become more responsible for their life, but they have a social worker living with them. Who's continue, they're continuing one-on-one counseling. They're continuing with their sexual trauma counseling. They're continuing to learn how to budget and save some money and be able to then move from the transition house out on their own and not get right back into having to sell themselves. You know, they've learned a skill, they've learned business, they've learned savings, they've healed themselves from the trauma. And one of those girls that just moved is being trained because she's doing so well. She's actually going to be a a paid mentor in our program and will end up being the caretaker at the Subi house because she's just done so well after six months or a year. I mean, not tomorrow, but we're, we're taking her through additional training for that. So, you know, these girls have mostly not been to school. A lot of them are illiterate. A lot of them are either completely abandoned or actual orphans. Uganda, 65% of Uganda's population is under 18 because so many people have died from AIDS. Like there's the older generation and then 65% of people. Can you imagine your (laughs) 65% of the country's teenagers and kids? So they don't have people teaching them a lot of the things that that middle generation that has died from age might be there to teach them. So we are sort of trying to stand in that gap a little bit for the girls that we can bring in 
We also have other girls in our vocational training program. So we had 20 girls going through vocational training. And fortunately, that term had just ended when the lockdowns came. We were ready and done orientation for the next term, which we will start whenever we're allowed to. But at least that first group was finished. So that's great. We actually got seven girls hired, like legit hired with a salary uh, from those from 10 in the hairdressing. Amazing. Yeah. I like that you're really focusing on the skills and helping people to be able to help themselves. I think that a big part of my problem with what I would consider charity is if you, okay, you feed them for the day. Great. And now I just don't like it. If people are going to become dependent on these things, opposed to trying to go out there and build something or get a job or contribute or do something. But if your main focus on, you know, hairdressing, and then they can get a job in this, and now they can provide for themselves. That seems to me a lot better way of doing it and a lot more sustainable. That's what we've always done. I, I We now work with teen moms. Before we moved to Nicaragua, I worked mostly with HIV widows, and we had two cooperatives of those. And prior to the cooperatives, we had done micro business grants. Now, I'm not doing a loan because I'm not taking somebody who has no money and putting them in debt. My feeling, I was told many years ago, if you can't afford to give it, you can't afford to loan it. So we, they had to come up with a business plan. We had a social worker that worked through a business plan. They couldn't just say, I want to sell charcoal and not have any idea how to make that work as a business. Um, We did about 65 grants over five years. We had one woman not do what she said, only one. We had people buying land, building houses, paying their kids school fees. My son even said to me at one time, he was like maybe 16 and we had gone out and walked around everybody's houses and visited. And he said, this isn't as fun as it used to be anymore. And I said, why is it not fun? He said, because they don't need us anymore. (laughs) And I got it because, you know, when you go and you're like, I see a need, I can meet that need. Yes, that is within our purview of things. You're like, that's great. And then when they're building houses, you're like, well, this is great, but you know, what's our job? So we're we're taking that we have never been other than we had a couple of elderly widows who clearly were not going to start a business. I mean, they had AIDS, they were 68, which the life expectancy for a woman in Uganda is 61. So they were way past their life expectancy anyway. We did help them some without any expectation from them. But that was two. Our, so now we've taken that same focus to these girls. We're going to train you with the skill. If you're illiterate, we're going to teach you basic reading and writing and basic English so you can talk to a customer. And we're going to teach you how to save some money. We're going to teach you how to do some basic business building things how to preserve your capital and how, you know, what, what your cost of goods sold are and what's your return on your investment and all that teach them those basic skills. And then we can, they're, they're still in our program, even if they've graduated, if they need help, if they have a question, if something happens, they can, they come back, but I'm not taking care of somebody who's capable of taking care of themselves. And They don't want that. They want to do stuff. The girls now are so they're bored. They're like, what can we do? We're not allowed to go out. Can we make something? Can we do something? What can we do? So we've been working on that, you know, 
And then with your programs, if someone donates, where does the money go? Is it used on expensive marketing and flying you private jet over there? (laughs) That would be a good expense. No, 100% donations go to the program. I am a volunteer. Um, Everybody that works with me is a volunteer. We have a small board. Everybody does it as a volunteer. We have no admin fees. We have no marketing fees. We have angel donors who pay for our website. They pay for our various, you know, the little thing, QuickBooks and little things like that, that you have to have. We don't do any paid marketing. When I go over, we donate personally, we donate the money because I want the tax write-off, but we donate the money that it takes for our trip over there. So, you know, when you've been there and we usually stay, you know, three to four weeks or something. So over 13 trips, I've been there over a year's worth of time. And you see what $5 or $10 or $20 does. You can't take $5 or $20 and say, well, let's go have a staff coffee because they could eat for a month. You know, and I'm fortunate we have another business. I do. I have another, you know, I I work in in our business and I don't have to make money from it. So and our plan is to keep it that way. If we get, you know, Charity Water does this and they they do fine. They have angel donors who pay for their admin and, and individual donations go to the work. And I figure if they can do it. Well, we've been around longer than they have, but if I can do it, if they can do it, we can do it. So, well, you know, I'm I'm teasing a little bit with those questions, but it's certainly true with other organizations. I have done a lot of research with some of these massive, massive charity organizations. And I remember the statistic, it was something like 93% of donation goes to administrative marketing and board of directors and things like this. And I don't think that a lot of people know and understand that where very little of the money is actually going to the intended cause. And so I I did know the answer with yours that literally 100% go through. And I think you were even telling me, you know, if you need to buy something like a water pump or a sewing machine or something like that, and you get the money in, it's like someone can actually donate to a particular thing, like a particular project. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Explain it. If you go, we, we use DonorBox and we you have the box, you know, you go on there, to, you can donate and you can choose where your money will go. We have like, a you know, for the water sanitation and hygiene campaign, we have food for schools, we have the Ross House and a general fund. I mean, some people just want to help. Right now, we've been running this Adopt-A-Girl program so for, to feed these girls' families during this lockdown. There's also a comment box in there so you can specifically say, or just DM me and say, hey, I'm going to make a general donation, but I really want it to go to this. That's totally fine because I can't have so many drop-down boxes, you know. But we also turn it around. So our average turnaround time on it from... If you, let's say today you donated for adopt a girl program for a month, that $50, our average turnaround is five days till it buys what you, and that's, it's a lot of times faster. A lot of times it's faster than that. If, if it's something we have to order or it has to be built. Okay. But we might've paid for it already. You know, we don't have a hierarchy. I'm the executive director we're small. I have a small board. They pretty much say, 
you know what you're doing, do it. If it's a big decision, we talk about, you know, then we talk about it. But I talk on video twice a week, at least with my director in Uganda. So if I talk to Ronald, we had a meeting yesterday. He says, we need, well, he did say, we, we need some storage, locking storage for the girls at the Ross house because they have small things or their own money or whatever. I sent the money yesterday. They're seven hours ahead. It's already bought today. We have it. So, you know, and I use an app that allows me to send money with no fees. Now there is a tax on their end, the government on their end imposes a tax for money transfers. But, you know, even if you donate, you can choose to pay the credit card fees. So you can donate hundred dollars and then it will, it will also take out the credit card fee. So I don't have to pay that. So our goal is that as much of the money goes as far as it can, and we are experts at squeezing those dollars, uh, you know, to try and make it go as far as we can. Amazing. And I remember also in our conversations, if someone does make a donation, it is a tax write-off because you are a registered charity. We are. We're 5013. So obviously that depends on your country of tax and whatever, you know, the laws are. Because if you donate $100, your CPA will tell you how much of that $100 based on your income is tax deductible. But it, but we are a 501c3 registered charity. So you get a letter from us, a statement in January saying this is what you donated to us. Even if you make an in-kind donation. So you like you, you have us piggybacking on your QuickBooks account, for instance. I give you an in-kind donation for the monetary value of that. And you still get a donation for that. You know, we, we make it as easy as humanly possible for people to get involved and be able to donate. And when I'm, when I can go over, which I was supposed to go next month. And now with the lockdown, I'm not, we take stuff over. And if people want to donate things, we take that over and distribute it. There are some things that we have realized over the years that it's better to buy there and and plow into the local economy, but the quality of things, everything's coming from China. So electronics and things like that, especially coming from here is a much better quality. So we'll take things over. Like I said, we make it as easy as we can for people to get involved. And what is a normal size donation? How do people normally contribute who want to help? The, the average donation is probably about, well, the average one-time donation is probably about $50. We have a lot of monthly subscribers and the average is about $40. So you can, you can sign up to subscribe monthly, which of course for us helps us because we can budget. Like I know I have X number of monthly subscribers and that amount is this. It's not that you can't stop it, but at least we have some tra- trajectory of where we're going. But we have, during crisis situations like this, we've gotten a lot of one-time donations to help us deal with this lockdown situation. Um, so you can choose one-time or monthly. And, um, you know, honestly, $5 in Uganda goes a long way. You you know, anywhere in Africa, but it goes a long way. Right now, the exchange rate is, I think, 3,410 shillings to the dollar. And... So I just said that Pasha was 95,000 shillings. You can see that you can get a lot of food, 50 kilograms of Pasha for 95,000 shillings if 3,400 shillings is a dollar. You know, you, you can do a lot. 
Okay, we're just gonna take a quick break. So if you guys haven't joined Expat Money Forum yet, then I don't know what I need to do to get you guys to go on this. The conversations in this forum are just unbelievable. The networking is fantastic. There's so much things being shared with the group that honestly, it's more than just me. It's more than just this podcast. It has grown to a life of its own. We have over 2,000 people in our private group discussing things like immigration, asset protection, travel, food, culture, history, everything about being an expat and going overseas. There's tons of work being done on Plan B residencies, on different passports. We're even talking about SIM cards, international SIM cards, and the best places to get your internet if you're a digital nomad and you're traveling around the world. There are so many things that are being shared by people who are actually in different countries, who are digital nomads, who are expats, who have gone offshore, and there's just so much there. So I'm really excited about it. I hope you can see that I'm really thrilled about this group because it's just more than I ever expected. And and a massive shout out to you if you are part of the group and you are contributing and helping other people who are looking to get where you are. You are an awesome person. I really, really appreciate it. So if you guys want to get involved, if you want to join the conversation, then go to expatmoneyforum.com or on Facebook directly, you can search for Expat Money Forum. You'll find us there. We should come up on the very first page. And yeah, join the group, join the conversation. Lots happening there. Okay, let's jump back into today's interview. And if people want to get uh, involved, what is the website? Where can they make donations or subscribe for the monthly? So the website is www.thenumber10theword18.org. There's boxes and donate buttons all over that site. So you can't miss it. You can explore the site and see our board, our staff. We have a blog. I update it. You can join our mailing list. Um, Instagram is making all kinds of changes. So we're trying to push people to the mailing list just so they see what's happening. We are also on Instagram at 1018Uganda and Facebook at 1018.org. And I post twice a day, probably on social media. I send out one news right now, one new newsletter a week during this more crisis time. So we are very active in letting people know what's going on, you know, where your money's going, what we need money for and success stories. I mean, look, we talk about all these terrible things. Uganda is a wonderful place. There are wonderful people in Uganda. We not right now so much, but we post a lot of pictures of people having fun and dancing and kids playing because we don't want you to think that Uganda is just this cesspool of terribleness. I mean, it's wonderful. I would move there. It was one of the most beautiful countries I ever went to. I've been to over a hundred countries and I was blown away how stunning, beautiful the country is. I met the people, oh my God, with the biggest smiles and people were so warm. We had so many conversations, which is people at the market or on the side of the road or just, you know, just, just random people. I went there, I don't even remember what year it was, probably almost 10 years ago, I want to say. And I was going to hike with the mountain gorillas. So we were in Uganda for about two weeks. And then we just very briefly went into the Congo and into Rwanda. And we were just kind of in that area. And yeah, just hiking, 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 chimpanzees and safaris and silverback mountain gorillas. I think 
we figured out that day that probably on planet Earth, me and my friends who I was with were probably the only human beings, the only tourists on planet Earth that day to see mountain gorillas in their natural habitat. Because you could see the logbook of the, the rangers and there was no one who had signed in that day and was already like quite late in the day. And Uganda is the a more popular place to go than in Rwanda or certainly than the Congo. And that was kind of the only location that you could really do this as a tourist in Uganda. So it was just an amazing opportunity. I had a phenomenal time. And yeah, we, we've talked about some, honestly, some, some pretty horrendous things that are happening there at the moment. But I, I do agree with you that the country is beautiful and that has a lot to offer. I'm just sad to hear about some of these things at the moment. Honestly, I mean, the people are just so hospitable. They're really quiet. It's funny because if you're somewhere and there's, you can always tell the Kenyans because Kenyans are sort of, you know, they do a lot of this stuff with their arms and they're loud. And the Ugandans, you're leaning in going, can you say that again? Because I couldn't hear you. But their country is beautiful. They're proud of their country. You know, we always do, we call it the one fun thing. So if we go for three weeks, it's hard. I mean, you have four days of travel there and back, the time difference, working in the slums or working in remote, really bad. I mean, we haven't even talked about like Rokobo Village and the other schools and stuff, really bad environments. And it's exhausting. So when my my kids were going, we homeschooled, so they would go with me and we just did one fun thing. So we've been on safaris and we've been whitewater rafting on the Nile and we've stayed on this resort in Island in the middle of the Nile that was all hand built and all of this stuff, because there's so many great things about Uganda that you don't hear about because you hear about what we've been talking about, the bad things, but it has virtually all the animals that's, that, Kenya has. It doesn't have, maybe up in Kadepo, they have cheetahs and stuff, but I've seen lions and leopards and giraffes and, you know, all those things. You can go to Bwindi and and do the gorillas. They have at Queen Elizabeth, which we went to last year, but didn't see the lions that live in the trees, which I think it's the only place in the world where lions have adapted to live in the trees. So, I mean, it's got some really, really cool things. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I mean, it is such a stunning, beautiful place. When you go over there and you're helping, what is the reaction from the people? How have they been towards you? Sorry to say, but um, like a couple of white people coming over to Africa kind of has has all these different types of connotations to it. What has been your experience? Are they welcoming towards you with the charity? Do they want your help? Do they understand? I'm, I'm trying to balance all these things in my head as a libertarian I, I totally understand what you're asking me. I, I have been there a lot by myself or because I had a friend that lived there. A lot of times I'd go like from Kampala to Jinja by myself. My my kids would stay in, in Kampala with my friend and her kids. So I, and I'm a people watcher because I'm a writer. All writers are people watchers. Here's what happens. In Uganda, it, happened, it was the same in Nicaragua. Western countries, people, citizens of Western countries, that's a better way to say it form a nonprofit through whatever agency it is that either themselves like me or, you know, through a, a big charity or whatever. And they go over and they proceed to tell people what they need. Okay. So I'm American and I'm going to go to Nicaragua or I'm going to go to Uganda and I'm going to tell you what you need. 
say we worked in Andros in the Bahamas, exactly the same thing, right? That's almost never what they actually want or what they think that they need. And I have watched big groups, you know, mission groups go over and they work Ugandans to death and they go out and they do things and they say, oh, they were so excited we were there. They sat and listened for two hours. And I said, what'd you do at the end of the talk? And they said, well, we gave away sweeties and shoes. And I'm like, why do you think they sat there for two hours? You gave away candy and shoes. They could care less what you said, right? So a couple of things that we do differently. 100% of the time I work with Ugandan organizations. Our partners are Ugandans. I don't partner with Americans. I don't. Now, we have friends that are Dutch and German and Irish and English that work there, but all of us work for Ugandans. Okay. That's the first thing. I'm not going to go tell them what they need. If you go in the slum in Uganda and you ask a mother what, what she needs, she will 100% of the time say school fees for her kids. I have never had a mother tell me anything other than that, even if they have no food. In Andros, in the Bahamas, we walked around and I asked the same question. And 100% of the time they said a job. Neither of those things are necessarily what Westerners think that people need. Okay. So first thing is I let the Ugandans tell me what we talk together and we say, now, do I help them come up with solutions? Sure. But I don't tell them what the need is. They tell me what the need is. So that's the first thing. Second thing, again, we are empowering people to take control of their own life. I don't want them dependent on us, on anybody for their food, you know, all of their food. Do do they need help for a short amount of time? Sure. Do these girls need a safe place to go at the Ross house? Sure. Are they going to live at the Ross house till they're 40? No. (laughs) Right. We're going to train them to survive and on their own and, and thrive on their own. So if you go to, if I walk into slums, I get the Mzungu dance, all the little kids, Mzungu, Mzungu, and they run around and dance. I have been the first white person that children have seen, and they have screamed across and cried when they saw me in the village. But if you go and you sit down and you look at them and you say, what do you need? And how can I help you to get that? They're thrilled (laughs) because somebody's listening to them. You know, it's, they're not saying, Hey, I'm here to paint your house when they don't want their house. I've literally a group came and painted houses and they didn't ask the people in the houses if they wanted them painted. (laughs) Right. You've been there. They like that. You know, they have the red mud and all that stuff. They don't want to paint it. So our goal is to make them not need us anymore. I'm not going and being the, the white savior and the let me tell you that we're so smart and you're not. And let me tell you why your culture is not how it should be. They have a wonderful culture. They have some bad things. Your culture, my culture, we all have bad things. And I think, and I've had, I've had many Ugandans say, why doesn't everybody do it this way? And I'm like, it makes sense to me. I don't really know why people don't do it this way. I mean, our director of the schools, the two schools that we work with in the West, a church was working with them and supporting them and providing stuff. And then they were going to send somebody 
And they said, we're going to send her, we're going to build a house because they couldn't rent a house. I don't know. We want you to change the name of your organization and we're going to be the directors if we send someone. And Gideon said, well, no, thank you. I mean, I don't understand how Western people think that that's okay. Because I think that there's so many problems that you've just highlighted and like problems that I have with charities. And that's why I don't normally give to any type of charity. What I do is I travel to a country and then I rent a place to stay from a local person and I go to the local restaurants and I hire a guide who works as a translator and I use a local driver and they work and I am very happy to exchange my dollars for those services. It's a free market enterprise. I mean, it's for me, that was always my way of doing, I won't even do this air quotation charity because it's not charity. I mean, it's, it's me exchanging this voluntary exchange, which is what I believe in. So uh, getting my head around all these things is, it's a big one for me. It's a big one for me. My big, my superpower, this is my kids tell me, my superpower is a problem solver and I'm very practical. I've always been very practical, very literal to a fault sometimes and a problem solver. So I started a nonprofit on my own. I didn't ask, I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing, but I didn't ask anybody. I just figured I could figure it out. I saw a need. It seemed a practical way to solve it. I had seen my mom, my grandmother fundraise and do stuff. It just seemed like a natural way to do it. And then as I got into doing it, I realized we weren't doing it the way other people, we weren't doing it the right way, right? This isn't the right way that you do it. I actually read it, saw an article. I didn't read it. saw an article, can 100% charities survive or something like that. And I'm like, well, yeah, it depends on what you're trying to do. I don't have any problem with people making money working. I don't. And I am very fortunate that I don't have to, but I don't see it the way people see it because I don't see it as a job. And I don't see my I see my job as solving a problem within the confines of the problem. Because if I'm Western and I go to Uganda and I try and solve their problems in my Western way, it's not going to work because they don't have that same culture. They don't think things through the same way. Not that, and that is not an intelligence thing. It's like Asians. My, my daughter, when we were homeschooling, did a math program that was an Asian based drove her crazy because she said they just, it's like a spiral and they keep coming back. And she wanted to finish something and then move on. And they, it was like, I can't do it. Well, that's just a different way of thinking. It's not a wrong way of thinking. So we go over there and we say, you don't think right. Let me tell you how to think right. The arrogance is just. It's not going to stick. Well, it's arrogant, but also it's not going to stick. So if it doesn't stick, you are only making an impact for the minute you're there. You know, clinic groups, medical groups go over and they give away vitamins. So they give away a month's worth of vitamin A. Vitamin A, they're all deficient in vitamin A. That's awesome. But what do they do after 30 days? So for 30 days, they're not vitamin A deficient, but then for the rest of their lives, they're vitamin A deficient. I mean, that is not how you solve a problem. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, there's just, there's so many 
moral and ethical problems I have with the way that things are normally done, or at least the way that I perceive that they're normally done from my 21 years of traveling to quote unquote developed countries and seeing how Westerners come in. You know, you did say that you are very fortunate that you do not have to treat this as a job in that you're not drawing a salary for this because you have other sources of income. And as same as you, I have no problem with people earning a living. Actually, I want people to earn a living. I do have a problem when someone writes their marketing material in a way which shows that the money is going towards helping the people and they're taking fat salaries themselves. I don't think that that is honest and ethical. I think that if there is transparency and people understand what they're going into and they can make an informed decision about it. I think the other thing that people do, because there's people don't realize there's a big business in volunteer tourism. Okay. So whether it's a church mission trip or just, you know, a college trip or whatever, it's volunteer tourism. Their hook is this is about you. Okay. Whether if it's a church, this is for you to get closer to God. If it's a, you know, or a school, whatever, this is so you can find yourself. So you, no, let me just tell you. And when I have taken the very few times I've taken teams with me, I say, this is not about you. I don't care if you don't like the food. I don't care if you don't like the bedroom. I don't care if you don't like the bus or the boda or whatever you're riding on. If you can't go over there and make it not about you, please don't come. I will help you find someone to go with, but it's not me (laughs) because this isn't about you finding yourself or finding God. It's about going over there and helping people for their sake, right? But that's a big, it's a big business. Volunteer tourism is a big business and it's so selfie and, you know, look at all the good things I'm doing in my week over here and never thinking about it again. And that's not doing good work. There's so much virtual signaling. I remember reading about these tourists who would go down to Costa Rica to save turtle eggs and they would go down for like a week or something like that and protect the turtle eggs. And I was like, you've got to be joking me. Like you really think you as a Canadian or American are going to go down there and save the world one turtle egg at a time. Like this is just not the way it's done. I mean, people are so blinded and I think that the marketing is just so deceptive in the way that it's done. Yeah. It just makes me sick in a lot of instances. No, I am totally with you. I mean, we are not huge charity supporters either. I mean, even before I had my own, obviously we donate to us too. Yeah. So that's, so let's pause there for a second. That's another thing. Not only are you donating your time, spending your resources to fly over there and help and do these things, but you actually take your own dollars that you earn from your other sources of income and actually put into the fund because you believe it. So to forget about taking a salary, you it's actually money out of your pocket who go, that goes in as well, right? I got, I got in an argument with somebody on Facebook because he's like, you're not being honest about something. I don't know. He read something wrong. And I said, look, I donate 10% of our income. Why would I pay myself a salary out of the money that I just paid <laughs> to put in there? I don't understand. I mean, he just kept, and people were jumping in going, I don't think he knows what he's talking about. Cause I'm like, and it was, it was on my personal page. It wasn't on the, the, but I'm just like, why would I be donating and then taking it back out where some, I think I would be losing 
in that <laughs> payroll tax and all that situation. So, you know, we believe in the work we've been doing it. My, my kids donate to it. My, you know, we, my husband and I were totally empty nesters now. So, I mean, we donate to it. You know, my son has been 10 times and lived in Tanzania for three months. My daughter's been five times. They're very active on in the, they're at the place in their life. They can't do so much traveling, but they are active in ideas and, talking to people and all that stuff. So, I mean, you know, this is, this is just what we do as a family. So, yeah. Amazing. (laughs) I also wanted to ask you, is there a religious connotation with the work that you do? Is this a, is this, you have to be a Christian to be able to do Is a church sponsored or Islamic sponsored or any other type of religious organizations that if you are, if someone is donating, then they're putting their vote towards this? We have now in Uganda, you pretty much have three things. You have Christians, which is a lot of times sort of mixed with tribal culture things. There's about 10% Muslims in Uganda and then kind of the everybody else. Very few because of the Indian population, like Buddhists, Hindu, whatever. We have everybody in all of our schools. We have Muslims in our schools. We have Muslims in our program. We actually, which is really funny to me. So the, the directors of those programs are Christians. They just, but it's not a Christian program. I mean, we're not a Christian based program. So we have Muslim girls who set up for a a church thing that's on Saturdays, that's ancillary to everything. And the Muslim girls are setting up they're, ha- they're like, hey, we're setting up. We're going to do the dance. So, I mean, everybody's involved. Nobody's turned away. We, you know, we operate out of our belief system, but we help every, anybody that needs help, if we are capable of helping them, we help them, period. End of story. That's it. So, you know, you can't step outside of your personal belief, but you don't, you know, there are church-based organizations and then there are people who are employees or whatever that happened that are of whatever faith. And that's sort of us. We're in that second category. (laughs) Okay. That makes sense. I just think it is important to understand if someone wants to support what it is they're supporting. If there is a political agenda, if there is a religious, if they're how all of these things fit together and work. And as we said earlier, being transparent about all these things, I think the the right way to do it. We are just working forest of the poor. The two schools besides our work in Namwango is, is the teen moms in general, vulnerable girls. Two of the schools, one is in Embarara's slum and one is in this village called Rokobo that was settled with Rwandan refugees. So Uganda takes the most refugees of any country in the world. Don't know, totally know why, because they can't afford their own people. But anyway, that's what they do. So they had all these Rwandan refugees from the genocide. They had just started this national park. They sent all these Rwandan refugees into this park, gave them a place and said, here are the rules. Don't kill the animals, whatever. So they don't have a clinic. They didn't have a school. They didn't have a well. They don't have a road. Um, and so that is an extremely poor village where the school has only been there, well, two and a half terms because of all these lockdowns. Those are both enormously poor. I mean, well under a dollar a day is what anybody that's working is making. Um, and then the third school is a baby's home uh, in the, towards the east, east of Jinja. 
with its orphans. And um, so we are working everywhere we work with the poorest people. I don't, if, if you are starving, I don't care if you think the turtle is God. I mean, you know, let me give you some food if I have it. So, and we go through villages with witch doctors and the witch doctors all have a tree. You probably know this from, from Africa. So you have a big tree and they have like chairs hanging in the tree and things hanging in the tree. And that's the witch doctor's tree and all that. So, I mean, they may not like us too much, but that's okay. Okay. So in general terms, are there any other pitfalls or things that people should know or due diligence or things that they should look into when looking at a charity, obviously, you know, I want my listeners to go out there and do their research on you and if it makes sense for them to support what you're doing. But just in general terms, how do people see these types of things or what should they keep in mind? There are, at least for U.S. charities, several rating organizations that, you know, the charity voluntarily joins them in general, and then it'll tell you how much of a percentage goes for various things. What you want in general, if it's a big organization, is at least 85% going to the work. Because anything more than that, they're paying for offices and expensive marketing and billboards and that sort of thing. I would also really, you know, look into things like and ask them questions. Almost all of them will have an annual report or something. Charities have to file taxes over $50,000 a year. So, you know, their annual reports, we have an annual report. It's on our website and see how much are they paying for salaries? How much are they paying for marketing? I mean, you know, marketing now is kind of a bugaboo because you've got social media, but they don't want to show you to anybody till you pay. And then you keep paying all this money. And, you know, we're in an area here, for instance, where we have a lot of military and vets. So we have a lot of billboards for vet-oriented charities. Well, I always think how much is a billboard costing you? You don't just want to look at the slick campaign and the great photography and the amazing videos and say, oh my gosh, this is so great. This is how I'm going to save the turtle or feed a child or sponsor a child. Because a lot of child sponsorships, you're paying $30 a month. And then if you really look at it, at the breakdown, not that much of that money is going to the child. So, you know, you, you just these days, sadly, need to look beyond the slick marketing campaigns. And I am not denigrating big charities because big there are big charities doing great work, but small charities tend to be leaner and faster. You know, if I give to a big charity, like let's just say the Red Cross, I don't know, I can, I'm not, whatever. How long until my money does something? How long is my money sitting for, at the Red Cross's bank account before it does something? You're used going to a small charity who's embedded in a country and really has local people working. They're going to be able to make a big impact with your money fast, which is what you want. You don't want them make an interest on your money or investing your money or, you know, whatever. So there are a lot of people doing great work. And then there's some that there's one, I'm not going to say who it is. You would know them instantly that like 45% goes to the work 45. That's it. And they make millions of dollars. Okay. First of all, tell me the name of the website again. If someone wanted to go on the computer right now, tell me the name again. And then if they went on that website and they looked at the financials, what are they going to see? What are they going to find? 
So we have an annual report. It's at the bottom, I believe. It's at the bottom. We just read. I had a, a somebody volunteer their time to redo my website. So I think it's at the bottom. And you will just see how much went to food, how much went to when it says salaries, those are Ugandans salaries. They're not, we, nobody here makes any salary. We do pay obviously our teachers and social workers and security guard and things like that. And you'll just see like a pie chart with how much went, how much we, we brought in, um, pictures, you know, kind of an annual reporty sort of a thing with, with this is what the year was. You are always welcome to send me a message on social media or send me an email from the website or whatever and ask any questions. You know, I'm happy to do a Zoom. That's how I got this girl from Germany. She's like, I really want to know more about it. We talked for an hour and then she redid my website. So, you know, the website is www.thenumber10theword18.org. We are 1018 Uganda, spelled at all words in Instagram and 1018.org, all words on Facebook. And I am on LinkedIn, but I don't do a whole lot on LinkedIn because I don't get it really. (laughs) I don't really get LinkedIn. LinkedIn either. That's fine. I just share stuff from other places to LinkedIn, but I am probably too accessible. So I am happy to answer or do a private call or Zoom or whatever with anybody because, you know, this is, I do a lot of other things. I've written books. I, you know, I'm a grandmother. I, I have this other work I do, but this is my passion. This mm-hmm. is where my I can see heart that. is. And so I'm always happy to talk to people about it. And you mentioned that someone did the website. Is that common where someone will have some type of skill or they own a business and through that they're able to contribute in possibly non-financial ways? Because sometimes people are comfortable with other things that they can do because, uh, you know, of some of the problems that we've talked about with other charities, I think people have been burnt before and maybe have a bad taste in their mouth. So as they're getting comfortable, what are things that you guys are looking for or how could someone help or contribute in non-financial ways to push the, to, to help people in Uganda? Well, one of the best things, and and we've really, with the changes in social media algorithms and all that, I, we've I've really had a lot of conversation about this actually recently. And peer to peer things, you know, just sharing our posts, ju- you know, telling somebody, hey, I heard Jennings on Mikhail's podcast, or I saw, I read about this, and t- check it out. I mean, just a peer to peer sort of thing that costs nothing is just a way to get the word out. Um, I do speaking, you know, and that doesn't cost, I don't charge to go speak somewhere. I can do it on Zoom. If you have a small group, a book club, a women's club, Bible study, Rotary, you know, I speak a lot. I've done a lot of Rotary and that sort of thing talks. Rotary has been a big supporter for us. We've gotten a couple grants from Rotary in the last couple of years. Those don't cost you anything, but a little bit of time. I had somebody last year who said, Hey, I'm doing ads management for this company. And I'd love to donate, you know, $30 a month. I'll do it through my ad campaign on Facebook and let me just, I'll, I'll run the ads for you and pay, you know, pay. Cause I don't pay. And that was great. You know, she did it for like three months. That's how long she said she was going to do it. And, you know, I mostly wrote the ads, but she scheduled them and boosted them and whatever other things you do. I don't know. I'm not good at that. 
you know, that anything like that, but honestly, just word of mouth, just say, you know, and right now things are crazy everywhere. You may not have money to put into it, but if you just share us with somebody or have me talk to somebody or whatever, or just every time you see a post and share this podcast episode, I think, you know, a lot of my listeners know and do share my work. I mean, if you guys were ever going to share any of my work, please share this one, share this one. This is really important stuff here. And I think Jennings has been very amazing with her time in explaining all of these concepts to us. So try to get the word out there as much as possible. I think it's really important. Yeah. I mean, for, for us, I do the very best when people hear me talk about it because I'm a good writer. I am a writer, but you can't explain all this in a social media post or a blog post or a monthly newsletter. 283 characters or something is not going to quite tell the the entire story. And so, you know, when people hear about it and really understand, and I'm, like I said, I'm very practical. So I don't do a lot of this flowery promising blah. I, I, this is how it is. This is what we do. This is what we can do with your money. And if you can support us in any way, that's awesome. I have no other promises beyond that. But you, with us, you can literally make a difference to somebody. You can literally make an impact in somebody's life. In some, without being hyperbolic at all, you can literally save somebody's life. And you know, if, if it calls to you, then I would love for you to get involved because people who do get involved tend to be very passionate about it. And that's what we want. I'd rather have a hundred people super passionate than a thousand people who could care less, but they just send a little money every month. Well, and that's exactly what I'm doing. Like I said earlier, me and you took a phone call together. I was really moved by the story. I have a platform. This will get listened to by hopefully tens of thousands of people. And this is my way of helping and contributing to try to do, to get the word out there. So I'll certainly be doing my part to share it on social media, in my newsletter, on my website at expatmoneyshow.com. I'll make sure that I have the links to your program and to all of your things on there. And then, yeah, let's let's spread the word. Awesome. Thank you so much. I, I so appreciate it. This was great. I, you're the only person, I, I mean, I signed up for that, whatever it was, I don't even remember, Podmatch. And I was so excited because this is great. Well, I think... I think that this is a really important topic to me because I have traveled through Uganda and Uganda really meant something to me. And when I learned about all of the problems that are happening specifically with these lockdowns with COVID, it's like, wow, I need to do something to get involved. And so messaged you immediately. We took the phone call, we discussed things, and now we're having you on today. So thank you, Jennings, for the work that you do. I think it is tremendously, tremendously important. And I'm so happy to be able to do my small part by sharing the message. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And once more, if my listeners want to get a hold of you, if they want to find out more about what you do, that website again, tell us the full website, maybe even spell it out for us so people have an understanding. www.10eighten.org. So the number 10, the word 18, dot org because all the numbers and all the words were taken <laughs> so we had to split it up <laughs> yeah well 
That's good. Spend money not on the expensive domain names, $5,000 for a domain name. Spend the money on the people. $12. $12 domain name. That's exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I also thought when you were talking, I'm like, wow, she does like a lot of guerrilla marketing. And then I was like, haha, Uganda, gorillas. That's good. Uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gotten to Wendy, but I'm going to get there. So I'm it's gonna... so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Yeah. It's far. From where I normally work. Although now that I'm working in Embarara, it's not as far. But I used to work all the way in Tarora, which is almost in Kenya. So it was all the way on the other side. Amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. 1018, you guys go check it out. Amazing work. Jennings, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. I want to remind you that if you go to expatmoneyshow.com, you're going to be able to download our special report. It's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. It has been a project of mine I have been working on for maybe four years now, and I constantly update this with the newest and best strategies. Now, it's really different than a lot of other special reports or books out there because this one is really short, and it is short on purpose. What I want to do is kind of highlight to you the best of the best strategies that are out there in the world and then where you can go for additional information or how you can get involved in these things. So instead of writing a 500-page special report on this, which probably chances are no one is going to read it, this is really highly condensed information. I've actually put it in an infographic. It's an infographic special report. Uh, it has helped thousands upon thousands of people really get a grasp of being an expat and what type of things are out there to protect your assets, professionals that you should be working with, investments, real estate, these types of things. So it's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. You can pick it up at expatmoneyshow.com. You'll see it. It's on the very first page at the very top. All you need to do is put in your name and email address. You're going to get a chance to actually join my private email list, EMS Pulse. And there's just so much great things that are shared on there. It's completely free. There's no funnel. There's no trick to this. There's no credit card needed, anything like that. It's just a good resource for you, my listener, who I love and adore, and I want to do right by you guys. So go to expatmoneyshow.com, pick this up. Let me know what you think. I'll talk to you soon. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. 
But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.